0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I think we're going to be
0: doing the chronologically earliest film that we've done so far. Isn't that right? I believe so. So today we're going to be talking about Doctor X, a 1932 American pre-code horror film that uh, that that shocked my soul and conscience, and I I thought was just a fabulous ride.
1: Yeah, yeah this this one was a pleasant surprise for me as well. Uh, I was only vaguely aware of it. I'll get into. Into some of that in a bit, but I was vaguely aware that it existed, knew basically nothing about it. You suggested it. I saw a couple of the people that were involved in it, and I just signed on sight unseen and went in without any spoilers or anything. Watched it this morning, and it was fabulous. So while it, it might seem to start out as a rather traditional film and it ends fairly tra- traditionally as well, it gets just heavily weird in the middle uh, in a way that, that really has to be experienced.
0: Yeah, uh, well, there's one scene in particular. I mean, I would say that there is a a like five minute sequence in this movie that you should watch the movie for, even if for nothing else. But there's some other mm-hmm. fun stuff in there as well, uh, absolutely. And, then, and and we'll get into what that is later on. But I I thought at first we should talk for a little bit about um, the the historical context. Of this era of movies, so this is a pre-code movie. You might have heard that term and uh, used by film historians before pre-code, and that that code there refers refers to something called the Hayes Code. So basically, from about 1934 until roughly the end of the 1950s, I think sometimes uh, the movie Some Like It Hot in 1959 is is held out as sort of like the demise of the the Hayes Code era, uh, but for this period, from the mid 30s through the 50s, American film studios sort of agreed to be governed by censorship guidelines that were known as the Hayes Code. So, this prohibited a lot of stuff that you might, you know, automatically think of. Of course, obvious R rated content like nudity and profanity, but it also banned content that was considered objectionable to conservative social values. So, that might be all kinds of, um, You know, references to cannibalism and things. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you weren't supposed to have movies in which the audience would be asked to sympathize with criminals or crime, which is just a a great guideline for complex moral (laughs) cinema. (laughs) Um, You you weren't supposed to have movies that ridiculed the church or religion uh, or movies with interracial or same-sex romance. But there was a time before this code was implemented, uh, before it was started, before it started to be strictly enforced in around 1934. And that brief period between the spread of talkies, so movies with synchronized sound, which was uh, mainly in 1929, and then the stricter enforcement of the code in 1934, that like five year period is known as the pre code period in American film. And it's characterized by movies that experimented with more controversial content of multiple kinds. So you had salacious content in terms of sex and violence and crime, the normal R-rated kind of stuff that that shocks the morals. But it was also, I I think is worth pointing out, a period of – uh, increased experimentation with progressive social themes that would mostly fade from American movies in the following decades, only to reemerge in the 60s. So I think that's an interesting parallel that in the same time you see this brief early flowering of kind of, kind of like racy R rated content. Uh, You also see things that we would we would later think are like good social values that were prohibited at the time. And uh, and they were sort of struck down with the same stick in 34.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, too, when you think about film, the film output, the cinematic output as um, an indicator of what the underlying culture is or was, you know, Mm -hmm. Because once you have the the code in place, yeah, to a certain extent, the code is a product of the the culture, uh, and therefore you can see those films that come out of it as a reflection of what the culture wanted to see itself as, but it also means you have this inauthentic view of what was actually going on in the zeitgeist of the time. you know We right. us go back when we watch films from the 1950s American mainstream films from the fifties, and you get this kind of vision that's like oh wow it it, it looks um, looks pretty dry, and uh, you know it's you know it's it's, it's pretty uh, it's pretty square. Um, I don't know. It, it's very sanitized uh, in many respects.
0: Well, well, people often harken back to they say there was a time where movies were more innocent. Have you ever heard that there was a more yeah. innocent age in cinema, which I, I think is a horrible way of putting it? I mean, that that's not really what it was. What you're saying is there was a time when American movies were more censored.
1: Right, yeah, because I mean, certainly, when you look at films from the the fifties, uh, there's plenty of horrible stuff going on, uh, like socially, that's reflected in those films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you have this this code in place that's preventing uh, this racier content from taking place, and it it kind of limits the palette that artists uh, of that time had uh, to, to use, you know, that, that were at their disposal to bring their message across, be it a, like a really highly thought out artistic message or the B-cinema message, which mm-hmm. I think, as we have discussed before, a lot of times B-cinema, um, that is where the in genre cinema, cinema, horror cinema, science fiction cinema, that's sometimes the first place where some of these cultural ideas are explored.
0: Yeah, totally. Before they reach the mainstream. Uh, now I, I don't want to, so we're going to be talking about this movie, Dr. X, which is a horror movie in the pre-code era. And for that reason, for its, its time and place, it does feel very, uh, weird and edgy and uh, unlike movies, you know, horror movies that would be put out by American studios a decade later. Uh, it feels mm-hmm. much more dangerous than that. But at the same time, um, I don't want to imply that this movie particularly embodies any uh any like at the time controversial progressive social themes that I can think of. I don't think it really does. I mean it's it's just no. like a horror murder mystery movie. Uh but it does have this this harder edge from being in that early 30s period that I think serves it quite well.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's just got a darker, weirder, more dangerous sensibility than stuff you would normally expect to see. Uh, from movies of the thirties though, then again, I, I would say, you know, there are some that are in the postcode era that, that rival it in certain ways. Like, I don't know, a mad love I think is sort of on the, on the same level. Yeah. But maybe we should uh, give the elevator pitch for this movie. Okay. So what's Dr. X about?
1: Okay. So imagine yourself at a medical academy where absolutely every member of the faculty is a prime suspect in the cannibalistic moon killer slayings, like serial murders that are taking place at night during a full moon. Mm -hmm. So we meet up with this character, Dr. Xavier, Dr. Xavier, we'll get into the various pronunciations. (laughs) Um, And uh, he's heading up the academy. The police have come to him and they say, hey, we think the killer is one of you guys. And uh, the, the doctor, Dr. X here says, give me 48 hours. I'll find the killer myself so the police don't have to get involved and we don't have to get a lot of bad PR for the Academy.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty great setup. Uh, maybe we should hit that trailer audio.
1: We are all under suspicion of murder. What? Absurd. Ridiculous. What imbecile thought that up? I'm Lee Taylor of the Daily World. Then you did it. Me? It was you who printed that horrible story of Father in this morning's paper. Don't be afraid tonight. Be sure you keep your eyes closed and relax. I'm laying ten bucks to a dime. It's another moon killer, killer murder. One of us may be a murderer, a murderer who kills with the light of a full moon, leaving his victim's body mutilated. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, I, we may have buried
0: one of the leads here, which is that this CD... 1932 horror movie about cannibalistic murders and synthetic flesh was directed by Michael Curtiz, the director of Casablanca. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty odd fact. So, um, Michael Curtiz was a Hungarian American film director who made a lot of the most well-regarded movies of Hollywood's golden age, he made uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938 with Errol Flynn, of course, Casablanca in 42, uh, Mildred Pierce in 1945. He did a, at least one James Cagney crime movie movie. So we are not dealing with a with a Roger Corman type here. This is not a scrappy schlock production, you know, for, for kids at the drive-in. This is one of the era's most high-profile and successful directors. But there are ways in which Curtis I think was much like Corman, and one of those ways is that Curtis was prolific Ferociously productive, and he put out a staggering volume of, of film work uh, of sort of mixed staying power. Some of it, you know, is is considered classics, movies like Casablanca. Other stuff is largely forgotten. And he bounced all over genres. He directed musicals, westerns, swashbucklers, horror movies, biblical epics. Uh, and and another thing that's interesting about him is that basically everybody who chronicles his life points out that his personal habits took the idea of staying busy to an almost fanatical extreme. Uh, There's one example of this. uh, It's a paragraph that I came across when I was reading an article in the L.A. Times by Kenneth Turin that was a review of a book called Michael Curtiz, A Life in Films by Alan K. Rode. And so Turin writes the following. Both on camera and off, Curtiz wanted things always to be moving. Hurtling cars and trains and propulsive people figure prominently in his films. Even the dark factory smoke in the movie Female moves purposefully across the screen rather than just evaporating lazily into thin air. Someone who is likely easily bored and reportedly needed only four hours sleep. Curtiz only wanted to be doing, 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 which led to difficult situations with his cast and crew. It's not just that the director believed lunch breaks were for wimps. Rode notes that Curtiz's, quote, demonic work ethic approached savagery. And working conditions on his sets are said to to be one of the reasons that the Screen Actors Guild was formed.
1: Oh, wow. So, yeah, just a, a, just a hyperactive filmmaker who just wanted to be working all the time and perhaps just did not understand that other human beings uh, either could not do that or did not want that right. uh, as the defining energy of their life.
0: Yeah. There, there was a whole other thing I was reading about his war against lunch. Like he hated lunch. (laughs) He thought lunch was a stupid waste of time and that actors were lazy after lunch. And so he encouraged people to skip lunch because then they would be more productive in the afternoon. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it sounds borderline pathological.
1: <laughs> you know, I have to say that I'm I'm ultimately not super familiar with uh, with his work. I saw Casablanca once for a film class in college, and and, and enjoyed it. You know, it's an important film. Uh, but I've seen Overdrawn and the Memory Bank <laughs> so many times, and so many more times than Casablanca. That the simulated Casablanca scenes in Overdrawn are the ones my mind goes to when mm. I think of Casablanca. i think of raw julia right and, uh as as as, uh, as rick. Wait, what's it's, the character it's rick it's not rick it's yes rick rick yes fingal <laughs> i get rick rick and fingal are one in my mind
0: wait who's peter Lori and overdrawn in the memory bank
1: they have some guy doing like a really a really um you know uh, stereotypical peter Laurie impersonation that's i don't funny remember because... if it's anybody connected to the plot
0: Raul Julia was actually a good actor, and I bet he could have done a good Peter Lorre impression.
1: Oh, I bet yeah, he could have played every role in that film. But uh, I, I mean, Raul Julia is great in that film. He's great in everything. Uh, but I would say uh,
0: Curtiz's talent comes through in Doctor X. This is a uh, this is a movie that is uh, busy. It moves. I mean, it's got a lot of action. It is. It does not lag.
1: Yeah, there's not a lot of space to be bored in this uh, in this film. Um, Oh, another thing about Curtis. I don't know if you ran across this. This is an IMDB fact, so I don't know to what extent we can take this as absolute truth or if it's just a story about him, but supposedly he fell out of a moving vehicle once because he had had some idea that he had to jot down. He had to write down on some notepad Mm -hmm. paper. Uh, He was driving the vehicle at the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right.
1: So uh, another interesting thing about this this film uh is, is not interesting because of the names attached to it, uh, but for what it it tells you about um about various storytelling mediums of the time uh This was based on a play by Howard Warren Comstock and Alan C Miller so back in the day when I guess you just had more genre plays you could you could have a cannibalistic serial killer play uh that one might view yeah
0: that's interesting today if one goes out to see a play it's almost certainly going to be of, you know, either, either a classical play, it's like, you know, Greek or Shakespeare or something, or if it's a modern play, it's like a character driven drama or it's a comedy. Uh, but yeah. yeah, we forget in the early 20th century, like genre plays in terms of like bloody gory horror productions for the stage were extremely common. Like the, the grand guignol in, in Paris, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. In, in a way, I, I miss this tradition. Like, why don't high school theater groups do viciously bloody Grand Guignol? I'm sure you can still get those scripts somewhere. They're probably even in the public domain.
1: Yeah, and they'd probably be pretty fun to put on.
0: <laughs> you get some kids uh, to do the the special effects, all the eyeballs squirting out and stuff. I mean, that
1: could be good. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of the players in this uh, this this picture.
0: Okay. Well, you had an actor named Lee Tracy in one of the main roles in the movie. Now, Lee Tracy is not one of – he doesn't play any of the scientists. Instead, he plays Lee Taylor, who is sort of the the everyman anchor for the story. He is a reporter for a newspaper called The Daily World. He is a streetwise, fast-talking newspaper hack. <laughs> uh, the The kind of sardonic crime reporter character who appeared in a lot of movies of this era and then would later be – Sort of imitated or parodied for nostalgic recreations, like, like the character of Alexander Knox in the Tim Burton Batman. You remember that guy?
1: Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, played by the airless guy. Yeah, uh, Robert Wool. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: he. That that guy, I think, is supposed to be a throwback to this stock character from 30s and 40s movies.
1: Yeah, you, like you know, the instant the instant a character like this walks on the screen, because they're like, "Hey, what you got there, partner? Let me talk to you about this murder that's happening all over town." I, I'm afraid to go out at night because, right. you know, you, you, it's, it has this whole rhythm, this cadence. It's an obvious trope. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say that that Lee Tracy uh, is is quite good in this role, though, and and while it does contain all these elements of the trope it seems to have some other fun quirks added to it as well so not only is he this snappy newspaper man but there's this whole thing where he's a he seems to be a practical joke enthusiast mm-hmm. who often forgets that he's wearing uh one of these handshake buzzers yeah you know where it's you, like his you sh- wedding ring he just forgets yeah. it's on there <laughs> he just forgets it's on <laughs> and and this gag actually works quite well in the picture and plays into the plot a bit so i i applaud that for making for making a trope that I'm instantly not interested in actually entertaining.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I got to hand it to him for that as well. Uh, and Tracy, I mean, he he is this role. I mean, he it's just in his bones. You can tell.
1: Yeah, I I read that he apparently played a lot of snappy newspaper men. Uh, there's an attributed <laughs> quote I found on IMDb quote I should have quit playing newspaper men after three or four parts in the movies, but the money kept coming in and I liked it.
0: <laughs> he so, liked it. <laughs> It almost sounds like a line his character would say in Dr. X. Yeah,
1: I should have done it in his voice, but even I can't do that voice too often. (laughs)
0: Okay, so then uh, the next major player you've got is Lionel Atwill, who plays Dr. – oh, my God. So they pronounce his name like five different ways in this movie. It is like Professor Charles Xavier. It's Xavier. Xavier Mm -hmm. or Xavier is how I think most Americans would say it today. But in the movie, they call him Dr. Xavier. They call him Dr. (laughs) Dr.
1: Xavier. I don't know how many different ways they say it. And then, of course, he is the titular Dr. X. Mm-hmm. But then, yes. in a way, the title also has another meaning, which we'll get to, and that is Dr. X is in Dr. Unknown. Right. Yes. So Adwell is one of these actors who played a ton of characters who were either inspectors or doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this, he gets to play both. Uh, That's uh, he's, true. But he's a doctor who acts as an inspector. And sometimes he played villains as well, uh, such as the role of Moriarty in Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon from 1943. And he was also in a string of horror films in the 1930s. He he played the one-armed Inspector Krog in *Son of Frankenstein* in 1939, uh, which I believe was was, was later parodied uh, in uh, what is it? The Mel Brooks film. Um, oh, what, in *Young Frankenstein*. Yeah, I believe they parodied that role a bit in, in there. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. Yeah, but in this, yes, he is uh, he is a doctor who acts as an inspector, so he has a lot of screen time. He's just constantly talking.
0: Yeah, and he's got a little bit uh, – slightly off-brand Christopher Plummer vibes. You know, he's a little yeah. bit Christopher Plummer but l- slightly less dashing.
1: Yes. And then there's also – he does have this quality too where – um You're not sure if you can trust him or not either. Like a lot of this film is is centers around a whodunit scenario. And indeed, you don't know what Dr. X's deal (laughs) is as well. Dr. Xavier's deal is.
0: Yeah, it's great. There's a cast of like seven different creeps who are all testifying to each other's integrity, but they're all just like the most ominous menacing people you've ever seen.
1: Yeah, it's a real rogues gallery. This medical academy. We'll get it. Mm-hmm. Like even without getting into the details of their well, characters, not which, we'll, it, yeah. which we'll get to, <laughs> they all just look wonderful and grow grotesque in their own ways. It's a wonder. Uh, we're not going to list their name, the names of the actors, because most of those names are probably not going to really resonate with, with mm-hmm. listeners. Uh, they're worth looking up though if you're if you're curious. But yeah, there like there's so many scenes where you'll have like our leading lady, who we're about to get to, and she's talking like a foot away or less. With one of these characters, mm-hmm. and their li- the lighting between the two characters is so distinct because, of course, she is illuminated and beautiful like an angel, right. and then these various character actors are illuminated in ways to like really bring out the the rugged definition of their face and all the lines and make them look like hollow, gaunt, haunted skeletons. It's, it's <laughs> wonderful.
0: That that's very well put. Well, we should get to the leading lady because she, I think, is. Without a doubt, the uh, the most well known uh, member of the cast here. It's Faye Ray. Faye Ray plays right. uh Joan Xavier, the daughter I think the daughter yeah, the daughter of Doctor yeah, Doctor
1: Xavier. I wasn't clear on that for about half the picture. But yeah, it, is, same here. it is the daughter. Yeah. Um and, and I mean God, it's Fay Ray from King Kong. That's right, one of the original Scream Queens. Um uh, yeah, she played Anne Darrow in the, the 1933 film King Kong. So she hadn't like fully exploded. Like King Kong was the film that really launched her into the, the spotlight uh, in, in a major way. Mm-hmm. But she had a very long career. So she, she was born in Canada, but raised in Hollywood. So she entered acting at an early age at 16, I believe, in the 1923 short Gasoline Love. Hmm. She acted in 123 titles up through 1980. And as for standout roles, she was in 1932's The Most Dangerous Game. And um, a standout role for us, anyway, would also be Mystery of the Wax Museum from 1933, which, uh, which we've mentioned on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before. She was in The Vampire Bat in 1933. And, uh, yeah, she, she, she's a legend. There, you, you can't deny her. In fact, uh, she is mentioned twice in the lyrics to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, um, so there's the, the whole uh, uh, there's a whole bit at the, the start of one of the songs. Whatever happened to Faye Ray, that delicate satin draped frame as it clung to her thigh, how I started to cry because I wanted to be dressed just the same. Does Dr. Frankenfurter um, sing that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. OK. That's uh, yeah, uh, one of the closing uh, songs there. Mm-hmm. But she's also mentioned in the lyrics to the opening number science fiction double feature, um, as is this very movie, by the way. Dr. X? Um, Dr. X is yeah. the, oh, the, the okay. chorus. Yeah. Where it goes, science fiction double feature. Dr. X will build a creature. <laughs> Very nice. That's my riff raff. Uh so anyway, yeah, like you know, Ray, Hollywood icon and Dr. X in its own way is um is also part of the like the legacy of uh, mm-hmm. of genre filmmaking here. So I I've been hearing Dr. X all this time. Uh, uh, watching and listening to Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I never really looked up what that was. But it's clearly a reference to this film.
0: It almost sounds like it could be just a, a stock character reference. Like, it wouldn't have to be a yeah. real character from something.
1: Yeah, because it sounds, it sounds like a stock character, Dr. X. You mm-hmm. know, he's clearly a mad scientist of some
0: sort, right? Right. Now, there's another strange feature of this movie that I wanted to mention, which is that this is 1932, but the movie is sort of in color, it was yeah. made via a process that they were they were the that they were trying to get going at the time called two color Technicolor. Uh, it's sort of a strange technical interlude in the history of film. Uh, the, the movie is not exactly in full color. There are a lot of hues that don't get captured. You're not going to get accurate uh, purples and blues and yellows and all that. But it's definitely not in black and white. Uh, though there was an alternate version of the film that was shot in black and white. Uh, I've read that it's almost identical in content, except for some minor changes to ad libs in the dialogue. But there are two versions of this movie that were shot, one for black and white projectors and one for the uh, the Technicolor version. And this, I think, was the product of a deal between Technicolor and Warner Brothers. Apparently, Technicolor was not happy with the fact that an alternate black and white version of the film was produced. Um, so, It's kind of hard to describe exactly how it looks, but it's sort of in color. Certain types of colors and shades come through. The dominant ranges uh, of the movie seem to be sort of like green and orange. And I think that's because the two-color process used two filters. One was green and one was red. And I would say this two-color spectrum would not be a good fit for every film, but I feel like it sort of works in this one. It's kind of appropriate because it suggests this diseased world of orange light that's kind of shining through the glass of a beer bottle. But also with this atmosphere of green fog, it works for Dr. X.
1: Yeah, it uh, it kind of has this dope fiend vibe to it, which is fitting because there is a quote unquote dope fiend at one oh, yeah. point in this film.
0: Uh, another thing <laughs> but, that you wouldn't
1: get with the code. yeah. So, so, I agree. I think it absolutely works here. If, I, if if you run across a black and white copy of this film, don't watch it. Watch the Technicolor one, because if black and white is the spectrum of truth and art for filmmaking of the time, then, then it feels appropriate that we have this alternate unreality of Technicolor in this film. Plus, there are elements of the flesh, of the synthetic flesh, that re- I think really pop well with the color. Like, I I imagine they would have been equally creepy in, in some respects in black and white, but the color, ooh, it really makes it work. I agree.
0: And especially because it's such an unnatural color schema. Uh, yeah. But by, by the way, if you want more information on the two color process, the George Eastman Museum has a video I found that you can find it on YouTube that explains the technical details of, of the process. And one of the things that video points out is that the physical characteristics of the two-color film made it especially prone to scratching. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. yep, because Dr. X, at least the version that I streamed, is full of scratches, long lines running vertically across the frame for whole
1: scenes. Yeah, same here. I streamed it through iTunes, I believe, and uh, same situation. Uh, but, but I like it. I like seeing those flaws in it, you know, uh, especially for a film from this period. Totally.
0: Okay, well are you ready to get into the full plot breakdown? Let's do it. All right, so we start with title and credits and then we we open on a, a a kind of seedy wharf. There's a a tugboat floating in the background and a policeman strolls by whistling in the dark. And it's revealed that we're out in front of a building with the sign that reads the Mott Street Morgue. And then there's a man in a long coat and a fedora skulking around outside. He's kind of hiding behind some barrels. He's smoking a cigarette. And then he looks up at the sky and sees a full moon and I think burns himself with his cigarette match. And he says, are you bad luck? I guess talking to the moon. And it turns out that this is our our hero in a way. Lee Taylor, played by Lee Tracy, the crime reporter. And bad luck is sort of his catchphrase. He says it like eight times in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And he is down here at the Mott Street Morgue because he's trying to chase down a grisly lead. There have been a string of horrifying murders in the city in recent months. I think it's supposed to be in New York City. I'm not quite sure. But it, was that the impression you got?
1: I just got the sense of it being the city, you know, yeah. that the sort of eternal cinematic city that that could be any major metropolis of the day. It's a dark city. Yeah, basically. Basically, <laughs> yeah. dark city. Uh, But so these murders
0: apparently all take place on the night of the full moon. And there's a full moon tonight. So uh, while he's hanging out outside the morgue, authorities are bringing a body in. And Taylor thinks it might be another victim of the dreaded moon killer. Now, there's an entourage that goes into the morgue. It's a bunch of cops. And then it's this one guy in a coat with super silky fur lapels. And I think that's Dr. X that's going in there, but it's funny because he's folding these fur lapels under his chin while he's entering the building, and he looks like Cruella DeVille.
1: Yeah, they all have a very suspicious villainous look to them.
0: Yeah. So Taylor tries to get into the morgue, but they won't let him in, and then he goes down the street apparently to a brothel. I think that's what that's supposed to be.
1: Yeah, I think so, where he yeah. uses the telephone.
0: Mm-hmm. He makes a phone call to uh, to the night desk at his paper, The Daily World, and he's out here complaining. He's like, I can't get any dope. And the guy at the <laughs> night desk is not very interested. And then he says to the to the uh, editor here, he goes, listen, you lunkhead, I'm not clowning. Look out the window, will you? And so the guy at the <laughs> night desk looks out the window, and it's a full moon. And, uh, oh, I think then he gets it. Uh, He thinks, oh, it may be another moon killer murder. And so the night desk editor is impressed by this and he's like, "Okay, see what you can dig up. And so then Lee Taylor goes around trying to get some leads. He tries to chat up a beat cop to see if he can get any info. And uh, in the course of their conversation, Taylor is, as we said earlier, revealed to be kind of a prankster because he zaps the cop with a hand buzzer. (laughs) <laughs> Which is not a good idea.
1: No, I mean, luckily this this cop is like the roundest. Um, this is the softest cop you've ever seen in your life in this yeah. picture. Um, yeah, he's a sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, uh, and even he. Ge- uh, and
0: uh, after after they're chatting, he gives Taylor a cigar. He's like, "Here, some guy gave me this. You know, you you can have it." Uh, I think maybe Taylor asks him for a smoke or something, but he gives him the yeah, cigar. Yeah, And then we cut to inside the morgue and then things start getting really interesting because here is an autopsy scene. And Rob, I know you love a good autopsy scene.
1: I do. And yeah, this
0: one kicks it off right. Uh, So Dr. Xavier, Dr. Xavier, is examining the victim's body while the police detectives look on. And there's this great shot of the doctor's silhouette behind a raised shroud. So they're lifting it up off the body and you just see him as a shadow operating behind it. But with his reflector on top of his head and everything, I don't know, it looks kind of like horns or something. And so the, the police ask him, what's your theory, doctor? And he says, it's strangulation by terrifically powerful hands. <laughs> and then they ask him about, well, what do you think of this incision at the base of the brain? And Dr. X says, obviously made by some type of scalpel used for brain dissecting. The, the word <laughs> scalpel is said like that multiple times. So that's already shocking, right? Strangulation and an incision at the base of the brain, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, but then, you know, here we get a but wait, there's more moment. The left deltoid muscle is missing from the victim. And one of the cops asks, uh, it was torn right out. And Dr. X says, it wasn't torn, gentlemen. This is cannibalism. I don't – how can he tell that? Like were
1: there teeth marks? He he doesn't say that there are teeth marks or that it looks like it was chewed uh, out. He doesn't go into detail and say, well, this is a traditional uh, like butchering cut or something. Like, Mm -hmm. nope, I just can tell this is cannibalism. And it's firmly established and not questioned.
0: It's the chuck portion of the human. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But so, okay. here we establish the moon killers, M.O., strangulation by terrifically powerful hands, incision by scalpel at the base of the brain and then eating the victim's left shoulder. Uh, And it makes me think this is a really overachieving serial killer. Like they're trying to get extra credit.
1: Yeah. But it stands out. You know, it's like I'm instantly I I watch this and I hear this and I, I think to myself, well, I haven't come across this exact combination before. We're in fresh territory with this picture. I agree. Uh, So
0: they say this is the sixth murder in a row, all committed during a full moon by means of strangulation and incision with a strange surgical knife. So why is the killer doing this? The police want to know. And then Dr. X gets into some brilliant speculation. He says uh, the killer is, quote, a neurotic, of course, some poor devil suffering from a fixation, a knot or kink tied in the brain from some past experience. And then he says that uh, that a bout of madness comes on for the killer whenever he's confronted with a vivid reminder of the past. And the policeman is skeptical, but Dr. X insists. He says, I tell you that locked in each human skull is a little world all its own. And, uh, and so the police want to know, well, what's the reminder? What's the thing that's, that's triggering the, the killer to do this? And Dr. X says, uh, he says it could be anything, the sight of the sea, the full moon. Every time he sees it, he's forced to relive the original moment that drove him mad.
1: Now, this is great, too, because we, we learned that this is Dr. Uh, X's specialty. This is his area of study. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, this is tied into his um his hypothesis for the murders. It's the same way, of, you know. If, if Terence McKenna had been called upon to in, to uh, <laughs> right? to inspect these murders, he would have said, "Hmm, I believe it probably had something to do with psychedelic mushrooms."
0: Yep, 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 yep. Very good comparison. Um, so, anyway, Doctor X has given his professional opinion. He's about to leave, but then the police flip the script on him. Turns out they were sort of entrapping him here. All of the murders, they reveal, have taken place just in the vicinity of his medical academy. And what's more, the strange incisions made on the victims uh, at the base of the brain have been traced to a special Austrian scalpel that is only in the possession of Dr. Xavier's facilities. So the the medical supply companies confirm that no one else in the country has a knife like this. seems like it would be hard to determine that, but that's what they say. And at first, uh, Dr. Xavier is indignant and offended. He says his students and faculty are exclusively of the highest integrity. This is impossible.
1: Yeah. So uh, so again, we, we, we find out that um, the, the murderer – is definitely somebody at the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as we begin to, to meet the members of the academy, we, we will learn, and we'll get into the details here, uh, everybody is highly <laughs> suspect and has ties to cannibalism or the study of cannibalism <laughs> or some other element. So it's, it, it's, it's wonderfully put together. Like you can imagine a spreadsheet and you're like, okay, everybody checks off like two things on this list. There's no real standout uh-huh. candidate here.
0: Yeah, it's like you imagine hiring at this medical academy. It involves like, you know, must have five years of experience, must have eaten a human. <laughs> uh, but so uh, Professor X offers a compromise. He says, uh, look, don't you investigate the people in my academy? Let me investigate my academy in my own way. And the detectives want to know then. They're like, well, how would you catch the killer? And then I, I had to write down Dr. X's response because i thought it was great he says by immediately studying the pathological reactions of every man placed under suspicion then trap the guilty one by a brain examination (laughs) science oh there is so much science exclamation point in this movie there is there is an awful lot of uh very funny implausible techno babble and and scientific words being used in a context that makes no sense.
1: Yeah, if you watch this film, I, I advise you to not try and think too hard about anything sciency <laughs> that any characters say because none of it really adds up. It, it'll just hurt your brain if you try and make sense of it. Yeah.
0: Um so anyway, the uh, Dr. X and the detectives agree, you know, Dr. X will investigate the people in his academy on his own there will be no publicity the press cannot know and then after they leave the room one of the sheet draped corpses in the morgue suddenly sits up is it someone who has risen from the dead no it's old lee taylor the fast talking reporter he's been snooping disguised as a cadaver he's even
1: got a little tag on his toe he's just so scrappy he yeah. can't can't keep him away from the story yeah Now, I have to say, I I think this is all a pretty fun setup with the whole uh, situation where uh, Xavier is given the chance to solve this internally before the authorities move in. Because uh, weirdly, having just watched the latest TV adaptation of The Name of the Rose, this is essentially the same predicament that Brother William finds himself in, in The Name of the Rose. Solve the murders in the Abbey internally before the papal inquisitor, Bernardo Gui, shows up and makes a bigger to-do out of everything.
0: Right, right. Now, I will say uh, Dr. X is no William of Baskerville, but <laughs> but he's – I don't know. He's a clever guy, though he – see, uh, I, if I have any major criticism of Dr. X, it is that Dr. X is far too trusting. I mean yeah. just like every like creep and weirdo he comes across, he's like, he couldn't possibly have done anything bad. <laughs>
1: Yes, he ate human flesh once, not twice, tops. But he's, he has a good heart. I trust him completely. He writes poetry in his spare time, for God's oh, sake.
0: Yeah, that actually happens. So yeah. we'll get to that. So, so we follow uh, Xavier. And the detective. I'm sorry, I, I keep saying it different ways. I'll just say Doctor X the rest of the time. Uh, I'll probably fail at that too. But we follow Doctor X and the detectives to his surgical academy, and we begin to meet the other characters. Now, first we meet Joanne or Joan. Characters call her both names, and she is Doctor X's daughter. This is Ray here. Yeah. But she doesn't appear to be a suspect. So the the police are interested in in meeting some of the suspects, and they want to interview these other faculty members. Uh, So uh, first up is Dr. Wells. And it just happens to turn out – Dr. X mentions, oh, well, he is a student of cannibalism. Uh, He's written a book about cannibalism. And this gets the attention of the police. And then when they go to interview him, he's hunched over a lab table with a jar containing a beating heart – and then he claims that he has kept this heart alive for three years through the power of electrolysis. I do not think that is a correct use of the word, whatever they had in mind. I think electrolysis is the decomposition of chemical compounds by the application of electric current. I'm not sure how that would keep a heart alive.
1: Yeah. Again, don't think too too much about yeah. anything sciencey that's brought up in this film. OK, I apologize. It's, <laughs> it, it's generally said in a very nice British accent, so just accept it.
0: Uh, I got to say, I, in a weird way, like Dr. Wells has a has a creepy vibe, but he's also kind of a hunk, like he's got wild hair and a five, <laughs> five o'clock shadow and kind of a deep voice. Um, and I, I don't know if this is ever remarked upon again. I'm I'm not sure what this meant, but there's a pair of boots in the corner of the room that are oh. bubbling as if they have been dipped in toxic goop. And the detectives That's just kind right. of look at them and notice them. And then I don't recall that radiator. radiator.
1: They're uh, on a radiator. That's oh, That's what they're, okay. they're doing, yeah. So okay. I couldn't figure it out, I was like, are there boots melting on the radiator? Uh, I wasn't sure what was happening there.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think that ever came up again. Or if it did, I, I didn't notice it. But it
1: looked nice. It, yeah. It, it looked nice.
0: Uh, but anyway, it is soon revealed that Wells could not possibly be the murderer because, remember, the murderer strangles with two ferociously powerful hands. And in fact, Wells is an amputee and he wears a prosthetic left hand. So he is not capable of having performed the, the murders. So so the police exclude him
1: at the beginning. Luckily, though, there is an entire faculty of, of really suspicious characters to turn to next.
0: Right. Next, we meet this guy named Haynes. The police want to know something about him. And so they ask uh, Dr. X, yeah, tell us about this Haynes guy, and Dr. X, I just have to reproduce this speech. He says. Dr. Haynes and two other scientists were shipwrecked off Tahiti about a year ago while making a study of the coral reefs for the Killary Foundation. They were adrift <laughs> for 24 days. Their supplies were exhausted. When they were picked up, Haynes and one other were delirious. The third had vanished. There was no explanation at the time. Haynes later claimed at the time that the man had died and had been thrown overboard.
1: <laughs> so again, it's like,
0: it's as if this surgical college only hires people who have been suspected of cannibalism (laughs) but but uh dr x says you know he's sure that haynes cannot be the guilty party because this is his reasoning one the killer is a maniac and two dr haynes is one of the most brilliant men in the medical world so see it's impossible (laughs) So they go to meet Dr. Haynes, who is experimenting with new procedures in what he calls brain grafting. I tried to look that up to see if that's really a thing. And no, I think that would just mean like a brain transplant, which has never been performed yeah. in humans. Yeah, never
1: been possible, yeah. Uh, and, but, it, but it sounds plenty suspicious. Like he definitely has his, his toes in the mad science, sure. uh, as uh, as does Wells with the the beating heart.
0: How would you characterize Haynes' personality? I would say that he is uh, he is paranoid. Like he is not pleased to have the police in his lab, and while they're poking around, they find a kind of I didn't couldn't tell exactly what it was. It looked like they found a kind of risque magazine among his things. It's like Ankle's Quarterly, and yeah. in the police's eyes, this seemed to implicate him for some reason. It's like, oh, this guy likes you know risque magazines. You know who else does? Moonkillers. <laughs>
1: Okay, so another strong
0: candidate, but there are more. Yeah, and we're about to get to maybe my favorite guy in the movie, so... Uh, next up, we meet Dr. Rowitz and Dr. Duke. Now Rowitz is a tall, ominous man in a white lab coat with what I at first thought was an eye patch, but actually I think it is more like a dark tinted monocle. So it's like sunglasses, Mm -hmm. but only one side of them. And he, when they first meet him, he's smoking a cigarette and leaning over a globe. And we find out that he studies the moon and is obsessed (laughs) with the effects of lunar rays on neurotic types.
1: See, it's like a board game. This, this, yeah. uh, this picture. I love it. How all of them have these just highly suspicious elements. They're not just a little suspicious. They're all very suspicious.
0: Yes, and I, I got to say, Doctor Rowitz is a god. I love Doctor Rowitz. He's like I, I want to be buds with him.
1: Yeah, he's great. Uh, though in a way, he's he's almost too suspicious. You like you, you kind of get the idea. This couldn't possibly be the guy because he has he he picked far too many items out of the villain uh, accessory grab bag, right? yeah I,
0: I i agree, uh but then we meet the other guy. we meet dr Duke who uh his main personality traits are that he is ornery and irascible. He just complains about everything uh so he comes he uses a wheelchair and he comes into the lab uh yelling at the detectives they like ask him how he's doing and he yells at them for asking him how he's doing. He's just always mad about something.
1: There are elements of this character that remind me of Dr. Everett V. Scott in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. So I, I would not be surprised if there was a connection there. I, I, I have nothing to go on uh, other than Dr. X is mentioned in the lyrics and therefore might have been in the mind of uh, Richard O'Brien when he wrote the thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, and I almost forgot to mention that we learn Dr. Rowitz was also in the lifeboat with Dr. Haynes. So it ah. was the two of them. And the third uh, delicious man who disappeared and was, quote, thrown overboard. Uh, though It's funny how it's like it's as if the rowboat story only applies to Haynes and does not apply to Rowitz. I'm not sure why, <laughs> even though they say he was the other guy in the boat. Uh, but they start grilling Rowitz about his moon research. And uh, Rowett says, if you suffer sunstroke, might you not suffer some similar evil from the rays of the moon? And the cop says, moonstroke, you mean? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and Rohit says, you know, the moon is powerful. It lifts billions of tons of water twice a day. I guess he's talking about the tides. And then he mm-hmm. compares the water lifting to what is done by an old scrub woman, which is notable to the police because the last victim of the moon killer was at the, the papers called her an old scrub woman. I think the, the paper headline you see is like old scrub woman killed by moon killer.
1: It's great. The the, the script is just so well put together.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Now the police suspect Rowitz again, like every new guy they meet, they're like, Oh, it's gotta be him. Uh, they it's, it's like that scene in, um, murder on the Orient express where like every time they interview somebody, the companions like that's the one they did it. (laughs) But uh, so the cops are like that. But, uh, Dr. X is like, no, Rowitz can't be the murderer because here's his reasoning here. He has a lovely nature and he's the author of several volumes of poetry. I mean who's ever heard of a poet killing somebody?
1: Yeah, that doesn't seem very logical. So this is this is definitely an area where he's falling below the the Sherlock and brother William uh, threshold.
0: I would agree. So it looks like we've met our suspects and the mystery investigation is afoot and Dr. X promises that he will complete this investigation within 48 hours. And then meanwhile you get some some side story with Taylor the newspaper man. And Fay Ray meeting up when she catches him snooping around on the fire escape outside the medical academy. Uh, she confronts him and then shoves a revolver in his belly. Uh, he tries to get some facts out of her, but she rebuffs him. Uh, 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 Joan Xavier clearly wants nothing to do with Mr. Hot Scoop. Like he, he thinks he's very cool and he thinks he can sweet talk her, but she just wants none of it.
1: Right, And she's more concerned about her father because he seems overworked. Right. Yes. Uh, she's concerned
0: about his health. It, she says several times, I think, just because like he never gets any rest. Uh, there's also I guess we could just throw in. a uh, We meet more creeps. The movie's just crawling with creeps. There's a scene where we meet this guy named Otto, who is uh, Xavier's butler. And he's just a, a, another one of the, these ominous weirdos to round out the cast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Again, just a great cast of character actors in this film. So then we get
0: uh, a scene that goes by pretty quickly, but I thought it was pretty good. So Taylor, the reporter, goes off to kind of kick rocks in the alley like he's upset because he, he can't get any good leads and he's moping around about his failure to crack the case. And then we get a very disturbing moment of suspense because behind Taylor's back, you, we see emerge a grotesque figure in a hooded cape with a drooping, sagging, almost melted sort of face. And mm-hmm. it approaches Taylor from behind to strangle him just as he's lighting a cigar, the cigar that he received as a gift from the from his cop friend earlier. And just as the creature is about to grasp his neck, you get this pop. And it's a trick uh. cigar. It
1: explodes, scaring away the moon killer
0: in the process. And Taylor never knows his life was saved by a
1: prank. Yeah, it, it's a great little scene because it's suspenseful. It gives us our first... A very effective glimpse at the the murderer, the monster in this film, but then also it it redeems that whole ridiculous scene with the cop earlier. Again, this uh, at first glance this this script might seem kind of schlocky, but it's so economical in the way everything ties together. Like everything has a purpose.
0: Yeah, it it is very tight. Uh, so Taylor keeps snooping. He goes by Xavier's house and meets a gullible maid named Mamie, who lets him inside. And he tries to steal a photo of Doctor X and a photo of Ray. And she catches him in the act and chews him out for writing a negative story about them, and throws him out of the house. And then after this, we get a shift. The action retreats to a new location. So everything moves to Dr. X's country estate on Long Island. And he gathers all the various creeps from the academy there and he informs them that he has to perform an experiment to determine whether any of them is guilty of murder. And I don't recall it being established how he figures out to go here, but Mr. Hot Scoop also shows up. You know, our, our reporter hero finds his way out to the estate. He climbs up a drain pipe and sort of breaks into the house to continue snooping around and trespassing as the plot develops. And and here there is a scene where I think basically anybody will recognize – the following sequence that goes on with uh, with the reporter uh, because it's recreated so many times in other movies and TV shows where a character is nervously sneaking around in the dark and then is startled by a string of loud noises, but all caused by inanimate objects like an ironing board falls out of the wall. Then a cuckoo clock starts chiming uh, and then Otto, the butler walks by carrying a skeleton for some reason for the next 10 minutes or so there are, is a lot of Lee Tracy making wisecracks at inanimate objects, like telling a skeleton to cut it out, will ya?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it gets very stoogey
0: there for a minute. But anyway, this is all working up to one of the big set pieces of the film, which is Dr. X's experiment to determine who the killer is. Uh, I I guess, how, how would it be best to set this up and describe it?
1: Well, I would summarize by saying this is basically sci-fi Shakespeare. This is Hamlet. This is the play is the thing. Right. Uh, because that's, that's essentially what the whole scheme is. I'm going to show something to them, and then based on their reactions, I will know. Yeah, like if,
0: uh, like if you were hooking the king up to an, an electrode and a machine that would read his guilt as he watches mm-hmm. the play. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And if it were elaborate. It took some explaining right. and had lots of tubes and liquids. Right.
0: So it's, at this point, it seems like the three main suspects are Rowitz, Haynes, and Duke. Uh, and they are strapped to electrical detectors that are supposed to measure their heart rate, maybe. I mean, there There is just some magnificent technobabble about how the machine <laughs> works. Uh, for some reason, it will measure the person in the machine for a history of cannibalism. And all three of them are going to go into the, they're going to get hooked up to the machine. And uh, since Dr. Wells could not be the killer because he does not have the two ferociously strong hands necessary for the strangulation, he helps Dr. X administer the test on the three others. And there's this great part where Dr. Duke complains about being able to see the moon through the window. He's like, close the shutters. It's giving me a shiver.
1: And again, uh, it's wonderful. They keep the the potential guilt. That's a suspicion uh, just leveled out among all the candidates.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Well, and so they've got different attitudes like Dr. Duke is complaining just because he's always complaining. He's just always Mm -hmm. mad about something. Dr. Haynes again is quite paranoid. He's very against the whole situation. He he just feel you can tell he feels his privacy is being invaded and he's nervous about something. And he says, uh, if you ask me Dr. Xavier, that's how he He says it this time. Dr. Xavier is using very unethical methods. And then Rowitz, who of everybody is the most on board with the whole experiment, he just responds, necessity has no ethics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's straight up like, I celebrate the chance to prove my innocence. Bring on the ridiculous mad science. Yeah,
0: but I I think it's great because he might as well have just said, like, the ends justify the means. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh so the stimulus for the test, they're hooked up to this machine that's going to test them for cannibalism via their heart rate. And uh the te- the stimulus for the test is going to consist of them looking at wax figures of the victims of the Moon Killer murders. I don't recall them explaining how these wax figures were made,
1: where they came from, uh and I beautifully it- created. I must have commissioned them.
0: Yes, and I think it's also it's worth noting that so this was 1932. Michael Curtiz, the director, also directed a wax horror movie right around the same time that came out in 33. I wonder if he was double dipping with the prop department.
1: He may have. I haven't seen Mystery of the Wax Museum from 33, but but yeah, it it was. He also directed that. It was also in two color Technicolor. I think these were the two of the last films that came out in that. Mm-hmm. But then it also starred Atwell and Fay Ray. So. There you go. He was double dipping in in multiple ways, I guess. Interesting. Uh, So
0: there's a reenactment of the most recent murder. So after looking at the wax figurines, there's going to be a reenactment of the murder and it's going to be put on by Otto and Mamie, the butler and the maid. And this for, for some reason should reveal who the killer is via the machine. And just as the reenactment is about to reveal the killer, suddenly everything we get, the lights go out, you know, there's like a power outage and all hell breaks loose. So a bunch of stuff happens while the lights are out. Somebody's cannibalism detector device goes off and then Dr. X reads it and declares it's Dr. Rowitz. But there's a twist. When the lights come up, Dr. Rowitz is dead. So Rowitz has been murdered and also, suddenly, Dr. Duke can walk again. He, he's up walking around. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Dr. Uh, Haynes points him out, and he's like, Faker, Faker! <laughs> and then we, we also find out Dr. Wells, who was helping administer the experiment, has been struck on the head by somebody in the dark who called his name and then hit him. And yeah. there's this part where Fay Ray quite rightly observes that this experiment was a disaster. And then everybody's just like, Nah, chill out, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, they're basically just like, don't worry about it. You know, you go get some rest. We'll deal with the, this dead body and everything. Um, oh, and then other, like a bunch of stuff happens all at once. So in the, while all this is happening, Taylor, who is hiding out in the closet, snooping around, he gets gassed. Like somebody pumps some smoke into the closet with him and it knocks him mm-hmm. unconscious and you don't know who did it. And then they discover him unconscious in the closet but they decide to let him stay for the night at the manor. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, but after that follows some incredibly implausible flirting between Mr. Hot Scoop and, and Faye Ray. Suddenly she's just responding to his flirting, whereas she hadn't been earlier. Uh, but anyway, everybody goes to bed. And I, I did you notice, like, do they explicitly say, like, no, we're not going to report Dr. Rowitz's death to the police? It seems like they just decide that they shouldn't do that. <laughs>
1: No, I mean, I, yeah, I think they decided we have to do a follow-up experiment. Yeah, we we can't stop now. We're close because, I mean, it's it's basically what happened is, you know, you're like you're saying they're sort of detest, they're they're testing to see who was stimulated the most by these uh, the stimuli they were presented with. But then, unfortunately, the individual who was stimulated the most, according to the readings, is also now dead, was killed in the dark. So it must be someone else. (laughs) That's funny, because that should indicate the fallibility of
0: their experimental method, right? Like, (laughs) if he wasn't the murderer, and yet he was the person that the test identified, that should show that the test is not necessarily great.
1: I agree. But, (laughs) but, But yet they persist you know because ultimately he's thinking about publication you know it's yeah. not about whether you catch the murder it's that you well document your attempts to catch the murder he's
0: trying to get tenure
1: yeah <laughs> yeah uh, oh and then
0: also we just get the little tidbit that later that night like Faye Ray's walking around and she comes across her father examining Rowitz's body under a sheet in a room in the house uh, and then we learn that his body has been cannibalized in the middle of the night so ah. somebody at the manor here cannibalized him Uh, so, but yes, as you say, the murderer still has to be discovered, and this all leads to the second test. Uh, before that, there is a scene of, of Hot Scoop and Fayre flirting some more. They're down at the beach, they're talking about swimming. Uh, there are some lines in this scene that are frankly hilarious. There's a great part where uh, he's like, Listen, forget that I'm a newspaper man. <laughs> uh, and I feel like here. I'm wondering if maybe we should sort of leave off in describing the plot in too much detail after this because this is getting up to the climax and I feel like we should at least be a little bit uh, circumspect but we don't want to spoil the mystery do we though there's a thing that it's building up to that we have to talk about because it's the best thing about the movie.
1: Yeah, I think we basically have to have a werewolf break uh, here in the the episode. So we have to say, look, if you want to experience the wonderful twist for yourself, and we recommend you do, then you should stop listening to this episode now. Go out and at your leisure, see the film for yourself, and then come back. And you can listen to us talk about it, and then you can share your own thoughts on it, etc.
0: Okay, but if you're ready to hear the end right now, uh, We absolutely must say that the revelation of the killer's identity involves the real star of this movie. And the best thing about it, a a God mode plot device called synthetic flesh that even gets like it, it gets announced in a voiceover segment. There's like a voice that is not spoken by a character on screen. It just comes on the soundtrack saying
1: synthetic flesh. Yes, yes, it's it's absolutely wonderful, and indeed, it's it's a fabulous plot twist, and it really, t- I really got me too because I have to admit I was convinced that Doctor X had to be the villain. He secretly the villain the whole time, and he made some sort of monster to do his bidding. And I believe this because that's what Richard O'Brien told me <laughs> in the lyrics to Science Fiction Double Feature. He uh-huh. said, Dr. X made a, uh, a creature. So I'm thinking yeah. that's it. That's clearly where we're going with this. Why would Richard O'Brien lie to me?
0: Right. Uh, Richard O'Brien wouldn't lie to you, but maybe he had just – it had been a while since he'd seen it. It got a little bit fuzzy. Um, yeah. Yeah. There is almost a sort of creature creation, but no. One of the parties there at the house is the villain, and it is revealed uh, in a great sequence where so all of the suspects, including Dr. X himself, are handcuffed to chairs so that they can't like get up and murder each other anymore during the second test. Dr. Wells handcuffs uh, Haynes, uh, Duke, and Dr. X to these these chairs, so they're held down. and then Dr. Wells reveals, I'm the killer. And they're like, well, how could it be you? And the answer is synthetic flesh. And we get this amazing psychedelic body horror sequence where it's very much – I don't want to compare it too much to this because this came later. But it's kind of Clayface from Batman uh, where there is this putty – that Dr. Wells applies to himself that I think is made from the flesh of the people who he supposedly cannibalized and this this putty goes on his body and can make new flesh and organs as he like smooths it on.
1: Yeah, it is fabulous. Another thing I would compare it to – and again – this is something that came later and I think was was probably influenced by Dr. X, and that is uh, Sam Raimi's Man. Yes. Because the main character in that, played by Liam Neeson, uh, is a scientist who has cre- created synthetic skin, mm. which he kind of, you know, puts on—I go- forget if he gobs it on or he just kind of pulls it on like a mask, but at any rate, it's some sort of a fleshy goo that can transform his face into the face of another.
0: But yeah— the- the the essential premise here is that you can like mold organs and skin out of this clay and just smear it onto your body and then it becomes functioning tissue.
1: Yeah, so Wells in this fantastic lengthy uh mostly dialogless scene, he puts first he puts on this synthetic flesh claw, this great monstrous hand that he attaches uh, to to, uh, to to where he uh, suffered his amputation, uh, and then he began, He begins to gob this stuff onto his face, and it it is it really turns the weirdness in this film up to eleven. You have the strange, you know, two tone Technicolor effects going on, and it really feels more in keeping with experimental cinema of later decades. You know, at least yeah. from a, a modern film going perspective. Again, there's no dialogue other than Wells saying synthetic flesh a couple but, of times
0: uh, but as i said he do, you don't see his mouth moving when he says it it's mm-hmm. like he says it as if like it's in his head like it's a voiceover and it repeats and so it very much has the feeling of something that would be sampled in a in a yes. techno song or something
1: yeah yeah i was thinking the same thing um it, it feels like something that would be sampled in a mix and i hope has been sampled in a mix djs if you're listening sample this uh because it's wonderful but also the background audio for this whole scene is just kind of like mad sciency electros, And I was absolutely digging this as I was watching and listening to it because I think in many ways it's an accidental early electronic music score. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe something, it sounds like a little post-industrial, like something, something like Nurse with Wound would have created. Uh, in fact, I would love that if we could actually just listen to a sample, an audio sample from this scene so you can get a taste for it. Synthetic flesh. Synthetic flesh. It's Amazing. Great. I want. That, I want to pick up the single. Yeah. Um, just as a bit of of score trivia, though. Credit for the first electronic score generally goes to BB and Louis Barron for their uh, work on with the uh, magnetic tape on 1956, uh, the 1956 film Forbidden Planet. Mm. Um, so this isn't an example of an electronic score, but if it were an electronic score, it would be way ahead of its time. I, I also have to say that the... Um, that the, uh, the, the sequence where he's smearing the synthetic flesh over his face and into his hair and forming this new face, this face of the moon killer. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the later, uh, the, the, the current, the modern performance art of French artist Oliver de Sagazin, uh, who... Uh, many, many of you may have seen uh, there 's a one of his performances features into the two thousand and eleven film samsara, uh, but you can also find uh, clips of his work online. just look for oliver dissaga s a g a z a n and you 'll see his see what he does basically he sets up in front of a camera and then he layers paint and clay over his own face and does a fair amount of like you know performance art with it to just transform himself into these various uh, I mean, kind of monstrosities. There's an unsettling nature to his work, but it's wonderful. And in this film, in Dr. X, we kind of see a far earlier version of that same performance art.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder what are the other great examples of uh, of sort of extreme makeup effects in film from the 30s. Uh, I, I I don't know of any other movies from this era that that have effects that look like this. I mean, I would have thought, you know, makeup at the time was all basically just like realistic accentuation of the face, not not the kind of like horror movie makeup effects we associate with movies of the '70s and '80s.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's impressive. Um, I, I'm I'm thinking, trying to like figure out what it. You know, like we can think about what it's supposed to be. You know, it's kind of like he's gobbing himself down with sci-fi stem cells or something, but. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, some sort of flesh that instantly forges uh, a connection with his own flesh. But I imagine it's probably a twist on perceptions of elaborate um, uh, special effects makeup of the day. You know, the the putty is like flesh, and then it seems to become the flesh. And within the context of the film, I don't know. It's like he's got this, this you know, this big old jar of stem cells, and he's just gobbing it on and sculpting his flesh into the desired nightmare but but I think also we can find a, a possible connection here to sort of the zeitgeist of the time when you look back at the history of plastic surgery, mm. which, to be clear, doesn't mean the use of plastic in sculpting flesh, but the overall plasticity of flesh mm. that can be um, utilized in reconstructive surgery. So you look at some of the achievements that were made even at that time and in you know, previous decades. uh and they were pretty amazing stuff like walking lengths of flesh up to the face or down from the forehead in order to uh, slowly graft it and form it and to reform features that were lost. Uh, cartilage uh, implantation is another example. Uh, if, if you look up uh, images of, say, uh, uh, World War I facial reconstruction, uh, you can see examples of this because some of it is quite amazing. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it can be a little tough to take in, uh, but it's quite interesting. Uh, and remember, this is 1932, so memories of the First World War's injuries are still raw, as are likely the photographs of the surgical reconstructions that were possible Um, There's even a great line from Wells that I feel like reflects this, because as he's having his like supervillain reveal speech, he says, yes, look at it. A real hand. It's alive. It's flesh, synthetic flesh. For years, I've been searching to find the secret of a living, manufactured flesh. And now I found it. You think I went to Africa to study cannibalism? I went there to get samples of the human flesh that the natives eat. Yes, that's what I needed. Living flesh from humans for my experiments. What difference did it make if a few people had to die? Their flesh taught me how to manufacture arms, legs, faces that are human. I'll make a cripple world whole again.
0: So again, we get a a very like ends justify the means thing. It's like, look, I've had to kill a lot of people, but I'm going to create amazing new surgical techniques by what I've learned through doing so.
1: Yeah, and I think yeah, you think about this film as coming out, you know, post World War One and before World War Two, it it seems like an, an it seems like that maybe what it's on onto here, you know, it's uh, uh and again this is kind of the territory, this is the area in which uh, genre filmmaking often works. I think
0: this is probably also a time where people were trying to figure out the limits of what was ethical scientific experimentation like there was True. probably a lot of experimentation going on that we would today regard as unethical in its nature but was you know it was not just people who were like i'm trying to do evil it was people who had this idea of like well think of all the good that we could accomplish
1: exactly yeah and and just you know continuing to 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 roll with uh, with what these technological changes meant for humanity, you know, like suddenly we're able to to wage war in ways that we were not able to previously. I mean, the, one of the prime examples from the First World War would, of course, be chemical weaponry, and we have a brief scene of chemical weaponry in this uh, film, as the the newspaper uh, guy Lee is uh, is gassed there. You know,
0: as for other ways that this movie fits into the history of science, there there's a thing that comes up several times, which is. Uh, forensic experimentation or like forensic biometrics, basically using Mm -hmm. uh, brain examination or uh, heart rate monitoring or things like that to determine the guilt of a person in uh, trying to solve a, a criminal case. If you would like more information about, the history of that kind of thing. We did an episode. I, I actually was Christian and I did a couple of episodes several mm-hmm. years ago about, uh, the failures of forensic science that where we talked about this big report that looked into the reliability of forensic sciences that are supposedly used to establish guilt in the courtroom and how some of them are in most cases pretty solid, you know, like DNA evidence and all that. But a lot of them do not have as solid a scientific basis as is often represented and may very well be sort of just sort of, uh, stealing the the imprimatur of science as a concept to placed on some kind of weak evidence
1: yeah Speaking of weak evidence, I I do love that ultimately Dr. X was wrong. You know, like oh, yeah. earlier in the film, he's like, I'm totally sure that the the the, the 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 killer sees the moon and it awakens these repressed feelings inside him. And that is what I will look for. And that is not what was happening at all. Like, no, the um, killer was like Dr.
0: X. It was a researcher who was fanatically dedicated to his own work and was mm-hmm. trying to and was willing to do whatever he could to further
1: it. Yeah. So in a in a way, it would have been interesting to see where they would have gone with a sequel to this film, right? In that they could mm-hmm. ask, well, where does Doctor X go from there? He's been kind of been proven wrong. In a way, he's in a similar place to where William of Baskerville is at the end of The Name of the Rose, where oh. he realizes that to a certain extent, his logic and his reason has failed him. He wasn't able to actually prevent anything, uh, even as, as he was able to solve the mystery.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I hope that the Dr. X has learned his lesson and will no longer <laughs> say that you can prove the guilt of someone uh, suspected of murder by using a machine.
1: Yes. Hopefully so. But I don't know, he seems re- he seems rather stubborn and he's already invested in all that gear. Yeah. Oh, we didn't
0: even say how it ends. I mean, so the other thing is after so Wells is going to kill Faye Ray while they're all handcuffed to chairs. And then uh, Lee, the reporter, is like, hey, this can't happen. And so he comes out <laughs> and does it. He gives him the old fisticuffs and punches uh, punches Wells in the face and they fight. And then I think he kills him by throwing a lamp on him, which sets him on fire. And yeah, the, he,
1: he shoots him in the, hits him in the face with a lamp and then kind of like tackles him through a window.
0: Oh, I think he also hits him with his hand buzzer, doesn't he?
1: Possibly. Yeah, uh, he is looking at his hand buzzer after it happens. So uh, yeah. that may have played a role. Uh, it would make sense because, again, the the script is very economical. <laughs> and then we get a nice little spot of romance and that's the end of the picture. Yeah, that's it. Oh, we get what
0: well, he oh, by the way, he he like he calls his society editor on the newspaper. He's like, hey, uh, you know, you might want to set aside some. What does he say? He's like, you might want to save some space for uh, for Dr. Xavier to make an announcement about his about his daughter, I guess, implying <laughs> that like that they're going to have a wedding announcement or something.
1: Yeah, so you get your happy lovey-dovey ending. The ending again is very, very mainstream and normal. Yeah. The beginning is it's fairly normal, but man, uh, this the middle of this film gets into some serious weirdness, and I love it. So you might be wondering, where can you get this film? Well, you can rent or buy this one digitally most places. You know, wherever you get digital films, you can rent it or buy it. You can also pick it up on DVD either as part of a, a two-movie pack, along with the, yes, the 1939 sequel. There is an actual sequel to this. I, I doubt that it meets my expectations. Uh, but it's called The Return of Dr. X, which starred an up-and-coming actor by the name of Humphrey Bogart. Hmm. Um, I haven't seen it, but we have brought it up on the show before just because I believe it has a synthetic blood plot mm. element.
0: Uh, I think I've read that it has little to do with this movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine it is. Uh, it really carries on the legacy well. Uh, oh, you can also pick this up in a big box set that also includes Mad Love and a few other films. So uh, that's worth looking for as well. Man, imagine a Mad Love Dr. X mashup, though. That would have been something. Yeah.
0: Now, one thing I will say that these movies have in common is that uh, they're both, I think, pretty great sci-fi horror movies for their time. Both are sort of pushed over the edge into transcendence by one amazingly weird scene toward the end. In this case, it's the synthetic Mm. flesh scene. In uh, Mad Love, it's the scene where he's dressed up as Orlac in the brace with the sunglasses and all that, that that costume. Uh, now, yeah,
1: the, the, the Rollo costume, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Sorry, not Orlac. The Rollo costume. You're right. Yes. Uh, th- those are like the scenes that make the movies in both cases. But whereas Mad Love has Peter Lorre, I don't think this movie has anybody of the Peter Lorre caliber in it.
1: No, I mean, you know, it's it's got, it's got a couple of... of of big names for the time, mm-hmm. and we mentioned you got Atwell and you got Fay Ray. But in terms of bringing the performance, like bringing something performance-wise that's mm-hmm. memorably weird, yeah, they don't really have it. I guess you get kind of sprinkles of it though with the supporting cast.
0: Yeah, uh, Doctor Rowitz. Yeah, he's. I mean, he doesn't have enough screen time, but he's he's my hero.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh put a scalpel in this one and a scalpel it's done. <laughs> a scalpel in it and uh, and call it done. Um this has been another episode of Weirdhouse Cinema. We're putting out Weirdhouse Cinema every Friday. Uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind remains a science and culture show, but Friday is our our day to unwind a little bit and enjoy a little uh, midnight movie goodness. So uh, let us know what you thought. Uh, Did you see this film? Had you seen it previously? How do you feel about Dr. X? How do you feel about the twists and the turns and that crazy scene uh, with the synthetic flesh? Uh, We would love to hear from you. Let's see. What else? Oh, yeah. Again, you can find this show in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, That's uh, the main way to keep in touch with the show and keep up on what we're uh, publishing.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest any topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Stuff To Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.